Today we're retelling that, that famous story of the Good Samaritan, and Sherry did a great job uh, with that and also introducing this message, so we're going to go right into it, but I want to pray because I want you to hear with fresh ears because sometimes when you hear a phrase like Good Samaritan, you think, well, I already know what that story's about, and maybe you do, but Good Samaritan has been a phrase that people use just to mean, well, it just means you're caring for anybody in need, but that misses, misunderstands the point of the passage, which is that that beyond racial, economic, social barriers, Jesus said we reach out to all in need, uh, no matter. And so today we're going to talk about that, and I want you to listen to it with fresh ears. Jesus, today we're so thankful that we're able just to worship. We're reminded today that we have the ability to care Because you, our leader and teacher, demonstrated how to be a servant. So today, God, we pray that in some small way, we would be able to be a representation of your hands and your feet in this world, uh, in the compassion and the love and the servant attitude that Jesus has. We thank you for that example in Jesus' name. Amen. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We're in this series uh, all through Easter, from Christmas to Easter, on the Gospel of Luke, and we're hitting highlights, okay? So we're not going through it just necessarily verse by verse, but section through section. And, and, and so we're here in Luke chapter 10, and it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a question a lot of people have asked over the years, and maybe you've asked that too in your own mind. God, how do I gain eternal life? But listen to the question again. Even the question itself is kind of, uh, it's kind of intriguing, and he's a little bit off in his question. Because he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, And the idea of inheritance is what? If you inherit something, that's a gift. That's a gift given to you. It's not something you do. It's something that has been done for you. And so even his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, it indicates that this individual was more focused on what he would do than what Jesus had already and, or, or would do as well. Luke says this man was a lawyer who won by reason of his intensive study of Scripture. Had, uh, he was qualified, they believe, to expound on its contents. And, uh, and it says he's an attorney. You know, attorneys have this way of taking things that are simple and making them complex. Amen? You know what I'm saying? I have a brother who's an attorney. He's here today. And, uh, but one in a, I, I read one uh, little student in a contract law class. A professor asked one of his better students, now, if you were to give somebody an orange, how would you go about doing it? And the student replied, here's an orange. The professor, professor was livid. No, no, fake like a lawyer. And the student then recited, oh, okay, okay, okay. I tell him, I hereby give and convey to you all the singular of my estate and estate's rights and claims and claim and advantage of, of and in said orange, together with all its rind, juice, pulp, and seeds, and all its rights and advantages with power to bite, cut, freeze, or otherwise eat the same or give the same away and with or without pulp, juice, rind, or seeds, anything herein before or hereafter in any deed or deeds, instruments, or whatever nature or whatsoever, or the contrary, anywise notwithstanding, here's your orange. Now that is how a lawyer would say that, right? I mean, they got to, no, no. Well, this lawyer is a really important guy, but he asked a really important question. The question was, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus knew he was trying to test him. And so in verse 26, 
he turns the question back on him and he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the guy gets the answer right. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he got right to the heart of the matter, didn't he? You answer correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Now, it's interesting to me that this guy knew the law, but he didn't do the law. You understand? He knew it, he didn't do it. It's one thing to say you love, it's another thing to actually love. It's one thing to say I love God, it's another thing to actually love God. It's one thing to say you love your neighbor and be compassionate, it's another thing to actually love your neighbor and be compassionate. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? My guess is he wasn't looking to see who he might be able to include in his circle. He was really looking to see who he might be able to exclude out of his circle. I think he was asking this question not to say, God, who can I bring in as my neighbor? I think he was simply saying, I want to figure out who I'd really need to love because I don't want to love everybody. He wanted to make that circle as small as possible. So Jesus answers his question by telling him a story. Now, in the Bible, you know there are stories called parables. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. That's how we used to teach it in kids' church, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Interestingly, Jesus never says this is a parable. Could be a parable, or it could be something that actually happened. We don't know. But he tells them this story, and, and he refers to this story, and he talks about some individuals who saw a man who was beaten at the side of the road. And this is what it says in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when, the sa- and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on his wounds. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he put two silver coins out and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, the people of that day would have been familiar with this road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a drop-off of nearly some 4,000 feet. The road was very steep. It was very windy, and it was very dangerous. And about halfway down, tradition tells us that there was a place known as kind of an inn where people could stay for the night. They knew that not everybody could make this journey. And so this inn was possibly a place where it was taking care of weary travelers. And so this man who was traveling this road, was taken advantage of. He was uh, robbed. He was stripped. He was beaten. He was left in the broiling heat of the day. Now, Jesus doesn't really address the racial element within the story, but it's obvious to the readers. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And the idea that a Jewish religious leader, a priest and a Levite, the two top of the top, the best of the best, would ignore this man in need and the hated Samaritan would help him was just unimaginable to this audience. I remember I, I read an outline by a preacher named Roy Angel who years ago kind of outlined these three attitudes when it comes to, when it comes to giving. He wrote it back in the 50s and It's kind of interesting. He said, attitude one that we often see is, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. We see that attitude. What's yours is mine and I'll take it. That's what we see sometimes in our preschoolers, amen. We'll take it. It's mine. It's yours. I don't care whose it is. I'm taking it. 
what's yours is mine and I'll have it. And, and so this attitude has a tendency to kind of bleed into our own lives. There are employers who tell their workers, hey, this is kind of a gray area in my eyes. Some people think it's unethical, but uh, we know our budget and we know our system. And so we'll, we'll make it up in some other way. And would you help me out on this and go ahead and take care of that? If we're not careful, we can really get pulled into this idea of what yours is mine and I'll take it. Attitude two, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. This is prevalent in our day, isn't it? The second attitude is what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. What's mine is mine. Income tax records reveal that on the average politicians who make over $100,000 a year, their tax records show that they give less than 1% of their income to charitable causes. And they want the government to give, but they don't want to be involved in giving personally. It's easy for us to say we want to give and yet not really give. It's easy for us to say we want to get involved, but never actually get involved. So what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. Now, this attitude really happens when we forget to understand that what's ours is God's, and we should share it. That's why the attitude that we need to have is one that says we want to share with other people, no matter what. We want to share our time, our resources, our abilities. We want to be able to serve other people. Now, I know there are a thousand things to serve out there, aren't there? I mean, there are a million causes, right? I tell you what I love serving more than anything else is just the local church. I really believe the local church is the hope of the world. I really do. That's why I do what I do. That's why I commit to what I commit to. I believe that the local church is the hope of the world, that Jesus Christ offers more hope than anything else that's out there, more than the United Way, more than any other organization. The church of Jesus Christ offers hope and extends hope to people. And I, I, we right now today, we have volunteers that are extending hope to a bunch of young kids over there, you know. Tonight, we have... Some, some young people, third through sixth graders, who are going to be in this building at a lock-in, right? 24 of them, right? 24 of them. Lisa comes to me. She said, we've got 24 of them. Can you stay the night? I said, no. I'm not staying the night, man. Are you kidding me? No, I'm staying the night. I'm staying the night. And, uh, but I told her, I said, I'm taking one of these couches over here, and they can come get me if they need me. My lock-in days are over. No, I'm just kidding. I'll be here. I'll be here. No, I'm just serious. Um, seriously. Uh, but uh, we're going to love on some kids and and tonight we're going to have some campfire songs, and uh, we're going to be uh, celebrating Jesus over the next couple of days, and they're going to have a great time. And, uh, but you know what? we got volunteers every weekend to do that, who go over here and teach the kids and celebrate with them. And I want to challenge some of you guys, if you're looking for a place to get involved, get involved with some of those nursery kids. Get involved with some of those preschool kids, the elementary kids. Be willing to say yes when opportunities arise. I heard Dave Stone years ago say this. He said, God gave me a gift not for me but for you. And God gave you a gift not for you but for me. And if I don't use the gifts that God has entrusted to me, then I'm robbing you. And if you don't use the gifts that God has blessed you with, then you're cheating the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so all of us, whatever the service opportunities are, whether it be to help clean or greet people at the front door or offer an extended hand of care to someone, I just think the church offers hope to people, both within these walls and outside these walls. Our community groups have as one of their central principles that all of us would seek opportunities to serve other people. And this past year, we have seen groups who served both the high school, a local homeless shelter, uh, a food pantry, and on and on and on. Our groups are involved in their communities. And it's great. It represents the, the heart of Jesus. 
That's why attitude three is, what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. That should be our attitude regardless of your connection with the person. doesn't matter if they're a total stranger or if they're your good friend. Our neighbor is not relegated to just someone who looks like us, who acts like us, who lives where we live, or has the same background that we do, or the same socioeconomic status, or the same race. Our neighbor is anyone, especially anyone in need. Speaking of lawyers, a few years ago in California, more than 600 lawyer hopefuls were taking the state bar exam. This is true. Pasadena Convention Center. When a 50-year-old man taking the test suffered a heart attack, only two of the 600 test takers stopped to help the man, John Leslie and Eunice Morgan. They administered CPR until the paramedics arrived, and then they resumed taking the exam. But in citing policy, citing policy, the test supervisor refused to allow the two additional time to take uh, their, their, uh, their 40 minutes that they uh, left out while they were taking care of this victim. In fact, the State Bar Office of Admission backed the decision, stating if these two uh, want to be lawyers, they should learn a lesson about priorities. It was covered in the San Francisco Bay Area newspaper, and the public outcry was incredible, as you can imagine. They forced the state board to change their mind. The two were finally permitted to take the test again, and additional time was granted. Now, uh, my brother Jonathan is an attorney, and I know he would have stopped to take that, stopped taking that test to help that man. Now, he would have charged him, but he would have helped that man. He would have helped him. Amen. No, I'm just kidding. John, Jonathan is one of the most benevolent people I know. He is so much of what he does is involved in helping other people. But uh, I like to dig where I can. Amen. You know, Matthew 25, Jesus said it this way. The righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus is reminding all of us that no matter what you do for a living, no matter what your other priorities are, that the heart of Jesus is a heart of compassion and love and serving our neighbors. That's why we have to watch our motives. We have to do it with the right attitude and the right heart, just as Jesus did. We do it with a heart that says, God, we won't want anything else other than just to follow you as our leader. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put light on a, uh, on a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See? All of us are called to a life of servanthood. All of us are called to put that light on a stand. That's why I'm challenging you. With what you say, with your attitude, and how you handle people, it should always be seasoned with salt, and it should always be seasoned with grace. Every interaction should be one of grace. Now, I want to give you three words here to keep in mind that I think are practical, and I want to encourage and challenge you with them as, uh, as we, uh, as we uh, go through this text. Verse 36, Jesus said, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Pretty simple question. The expert in the law, the lawyer, kind of mumbles. says, Oh, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Now, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Three words to keep in mind. Word number one is the word compassion. I want to challenge you. 
to think through the word compassion. Love means feeling compassion, feeling pity. This is not hard-heartedness. It's just the opposite. Friends, we live in a decentralized, a desensitized culture, I mean, where we are desensitized to the evil in the world and human suffering, and it hardly phases us anymore. We see ads on television showing babies that have been aborted, and it no longer phases us as believers in Jesus. We just say, well, it's just the norm. We uh, eat our pretzels and wait for the next commercial to come on, and we see murders on the news and on the uh, on the internet. We see malnutrition children in third world countries as we sit in the comfort of our homes and say, well, somebody's going to help them. And we hope that somebody does get involved. But friends, listen, God created us with a capacity for compassion. So it begins in your heart. It begins in your mind. And one of the reasons that we are, we are all relational beings, and one of the reasons I think that social media is, is harming us right now is because I think our kids sometimes grow up with an idea that relationships are based on um, 60-second sound bites and things that we say and opinionated kind of comments. I think all of us have to model what it means to actually love and care for people through our heart, compassion, the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus that says we're going to actually build relationships with people. Dan Schaefer, co-editor of Online Community Report, said this, Online community is no substitute for the real thing. Ultimately, human contact in the form of touches and hugs and kisses and outstretched hands is crucial to all of our well-being. And so, friends, we need to be extending the compassion of Jesus for, in, for no other reason than just the fact that Jesus is our leader. And he wants us to do it. And he said, go and do likewise. But not only that, because contact with other people makes a huge difference in their lives. Sherry's often said during this time of cancer that it, it's not the cancer that's gotten her down it's, it's, uh, or touched her. It's the people around her that have touched her so much. It's that loving touch, that hand on your shoulder, that, uh, that word of encouragement, compassion. Second John chapter 12, John writes, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. Texting's good. Um, Facebook messaging is okay. But man, there is nothing like contact with another person. Just saying, God loves you. What can we do to help you? Compassion. Second word, action. You see, love isn't just a feeling. It's not just saying, hey, I kind of want to feel for you. It is actually reaching out in some action. If you're married, it may mean taking some conscious steps toward action, not just saying, I care about you, but expressing compassion through time together or deciding that you're going to communicate more than you have in the past. If you're in a community group here at our church, um, perhaps the application for you in this story, the Good Samaritan, would be that you want to expand your relationships, to go beyond your own circle, to get out of your comfort zone. Sometimes our groups can become too inward focused and um, kind of uh, that old phrase, us for and no more. You know, we like it that way. Well, maybe our attitude should be one that says, you're welcome here. No matter what, we're just so glad you're here. And I want to encourage each one of you, if you're not in a community group, let us know. Groups at accesschurch.com. You can go online. You can email us. uh, You can just come to me personally. You can go to Josh personally. You can ask any of our volunteers out front and say, I want to join a community group, and we will help you get connected to a community group. 
It is vital that you are in the lifeblood of the church by getting to know people. And through that group, you're now extending the love of Jesus through service opportunities to these communities around us. See, friends, the challenge for churches is to move beyond the surface. The problem isn't, is our church friendly? It is a friendly church. The problem is sometimes it can be friendly during greeting times at churches and things like that. But we have to be careful to always be reaching out. I I love the fact that our church has always focused on relationships from day one. From day one, we said, we're not going to be the biggest and the best. We're not going to have the best, um, you know, everything. Um, We're not going to have the best speakers, you know. We're not going to have the the best band. We're not going to have the, what we're going to do is do our our very best with what we have. But man, we're going to really build relationships because that's what Jesus did. That's been our heart from the very beginning to do the hard work of building relationships with people. And so what I'm asking you guys is this. Get involved. Get involved in a community group. Begin to get connected here. Ann Ortman in her book, Uplift Worship, says that the average church is too much like a bag of marbles, scratching against one another, making a little bit of noise, but really not affecting one another. Ortman says the church should be more like a bag of grapes that mesh together and produce a sweet-tasting wine because of their interaction both inside the walls and outside the walls. How do you act when you're in line at the grocery store behind that person who has 25 items instead of 15? Maybe not that well. Or how do you act when your husband has to work on the weekend or when your friend gets invited to a Reds game and you get left out? How do you react in those moments? We should always be kind, loving, graceful people that are filled with the kind of compassion that Jesus had because relationships matter. You know, years ago at a Promise Keeper, you guys remember Promise Keepers, all these men, thousands of men around the country would get together at these huge arenas and they would celebrate Jesus. And Promise Keeper Convention in Indianapolis, this person asked a question, one of the speakers said, I want to know how many of you made a decision for Christ because of some large crusade or because of some revival or because of some kind of a track or something like this? About 2,000 out of the the 60,000 rose their hand. Then he said, How many of you would say you made a decision for Christ because somebody modeled for you Christ's love and compassion for you? It was a relationship you had with your mom or your dad, a school teacher or a coach or somebody like that. And 58,000 men stood up because there is incredible value in relationships as one life touches another life, touches another life, touches another life. Compassion, action. And the third one, self-sacrifice. You see, love is not just an attitude in our heart, and it's not just saying, well, what's the minimum I can do? I need to do something, but I don't know what to do. It's actually sacrificing of yourself, time, energy, resources to say, how can we care for other people? Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. And uh, Jeff Stone has been a family friend of ours for many years. The Stone family, Sam Stone, was editor of a paper in our movement. We're part of a movement called the Restoration Movement, Christian Churches. And, and uh, there was this newspaper for a long time, still exists, called the Christian Standard. And, and Sam Stone was the editor of that, beloved man of God. And uh, his wife, Gwen, just such a lovely servant of God, good friends of my parents. Uh, when my dad was in the hospital, Sam and Jeff came to visit him. In those final days, Gwen had already passed away. But that's, that's who this is. But Jeff preaches in Dublin, Ohio. I mean, preached in Dublin, Ohio, outside of Columbus, and recently moved to uh, Cincinnati. But he spoke at a convention in Ohio, and he shared the story of something that happened in his family 
And uh, I want to share it with you guys in his words. He said, my godly grandmother had died a few months early, earlier of a heart attack. Throughout her 50 years of plus marriage, my grandparents had lived on a farm that her father had given her. Her father had made provision in his will that the ownership would pass on to her five children upon his, don- upon his daughter's death. He said, my grandfather became angered at uh, being bypassed, although my mother and her four adult brothers insisted that nothing needed to change. They invited my grandfather to live the rest of his life on the family farm just as he always had. But in a burst of pride, he announced that he was leaving the fam, the farm and moving to town to buy a house of his own. The farm equipment, my grandmother's personal belongings, would all be sold at public auction to litigate uh, or to liquidate her estate and provide for the cash that he would require. Again, he writes, his loving children tried to point out that they wanted him to remain living in that rent-free place for the rest of his life on the family farm, but his mind was made up, so here comes the day of the auction. It's a very emotional day, as you can imagine. All these family members with all these beloved belongings that they really wanted to keep as a memorial to the grandmother said, well, there were a lot of personal items, farm implements that were displayed in a large barn on a cold winter Saturday. He said, my brother, my uncles, and I had had an unspoken understanding that we would not bid against each other if any of us wanted the same item. An old children's wagon was wheeled out to be sold. He said, I thought it would make a nice buy for my son Jason who was approaching his third birthday. I prepared to bid, but noticed my uncle Phil raised his hand, so I stopped. He probably played with that wagon as a little boy, I thought. Phil bought that wagon for $4. As the wagon was wheeled over to my uncle, I saw the other side of the wagon for the first time, and I noticed a a, a crude hand-painted lettering where 40 years earlier he had painted Philip on the wagon. I later learned that before the sale, he had asked his dad if he could have that wagon. He'd been told sharply, no, you'll have a chance to bid on it like everybody else. One of the items that my mother was most interested in bore a great sentimental value, he said. It was a beautiful wedding ring design, handmade quilt that my great-grandmother had made for my grandmother as a wedding gift. My mom wanted that quilt, held such special meaning for her, but determined the antique dealer wanted to resell it. And as the bidding reached a point where my mom's self-imposed preset spending limit had been reached, she turned with tears in her eyes and briskly exited the auction barn while her cherished memory was being sold to the highest bidder. That's when... He said, I decided I wanted to buy that quilt. I resolved that, resolved that no antique dealer was going to have the rightfully, uh, should be my mom, what, what should rightfully be my mom's. I spent more than I really had, and I paid more than I probably should, but I never regretted buying that quilt that day. The auctioneer said, sold. They folded up my purchase. I went outside the auction barn to find my mom, handed her that quilt, and said, I love you, Mom. And she started crying as I hugged her. He said, I can't recall, recall giving any gift that brought me more pleasure than to give the gift at that moment. That day, those circumstances called me to express love through listening and lifting and by living and giving. Now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now that's a great story. It's a great story because it it touches the heart of a son and his love for his mother. It's a great story because there's something about compassion and grace that somehow when it's extended, somehow when it's offered, it it touches the deepest part of us. But listen, it touches us because it's, it's the heart of Jesus. 
It's the heart of His compassion. It's the heart of who He is. And friends, I just want to challenge us and encourage us because we're talking about what would Jesus do? What was His life like? Well, how could we honor Him? I mean, I love the church of Jesus Christ because no other organization in the world is better prepared, is better led than the one that Jesus leads, and he leads with a heart of servanthood and compassion. How can we do any less? So, when needs arise, you can't do everything, but you can do something. You can can approach it with compassion. You can approach it with action. And you can approach it with self-sacrifice. And when you do, Jesus Christ is honored. So let's do it. Just look for opportunities, both within these walls and outside these walls. Be careful to say yes, not no. (laughs) Be careful to say I'm in, not out. Be careful to say I want to include someone, not exclude someone. These are the words and the call of Jesus on our lives. Let's pray together. We're just going to close in a time of just prayer. Okay? There will be no, uh, no extended invitation today, just a moment of prayer. God, I thank you for, uh, I thank you for uh, stories like the story of the Good Samaritan. Just imagining that man on the side of the road, robbed and beaten, and the compassion of someone who normally they wouldn't rub shoulders with, they wouldn't have anything to do with each other. And yet he knelt down, he picked up, that man and put him on his donkey and he tended to his wounds he cared for him and I'm touched by the story of a a son who despite the kind of the harshness of an uncle said I want to show my mom love in a way that that would be memorable and touching and I want to sacrifice for it I want to give for it and we're touched by that story But God, I'm especially moved by the story of Jesus. Who took off the robe of heaven and entered the world as a baby in a manger. Who left the just the glory of your kingdom in heaven and said, I'm willing to become a, a peasant child in a small town, Nazareth. A man who grew who lived a sinless life, who in the days where he needed his disciples the most, instead of looking for them to serve him, he knelt down, grabbed a basin of water, washed the disciples' dirty feet, and then shared supper with them. That's the heart of Jesus. It's the same heart of a God who was willing to pick up a cross, and yet for the joy that was laid before him, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame, he He died for our sins, brutally was murdered, resurrected on the third day, gave his life for us, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father when the name of Jesus is spoken. So God, as his followers, help us to be people who serve the world with compassion and grace as well. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name.